Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible. We're back in 1 Thessalonians last week taking a single week in the book of Jonah and maybe we'll just keep coming back to that periodically and as I said we might have a wonderful Old Testament book after this book is finished. But we're still in 1 Thessalonians, and we're in these verses, verses 12 through 22, and it's a joy now for us to look together at the Word of God and to learn from what it says, and I just pray that the Lord would have his way in your life, that he would change your life, that he would inform you, that you would grow in Christ because of these verses. Uh, this, this is a wonderful section uh, of this letter, and I think it just is tailor-made for individual uh, just growth, application, um, transformation of your life. Uh, Paul is just helping us here in so many different ways. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What a great passage, and what we're seeing in this particular passage is Paul exhorting the church. Paul is exhorting the church to continue to grow into everything that Christ wants the church to be. He, he's helping them to grow in all these wonderful ways. So the entire section, 12 through 22, I've entitled Ecclesiastical Exhortations because that's what they are. They are exhortations for the church. They are encouragements and teachings and instructions for the sake of their change, for the sake of their growth. Now ignore that subpoint for just a moment. But that's what's happening in the whole section. Verses 12 through 22 are ecclesiastical exhortations. And so listen now. They are to match God's heart. These people are to match God's heart. They are to follow God's ways. They're to fulfill God's plan. They're to ascribe to God's methods in their lives. They're to understand the way that God says things should function. And they are to partake in his righteousness. They are to hold to God's standards. They are to honor and glorify God in their lives. They're to conform to his image in their lives. They're to share God's heart. These individuals aren't to be proud the church's operation isn't to be pragmatic. The sin isn't to be prized. And the self isn't to be preferred. We can expect, because of everything that Paul has said up until this point, that this church is doing wonderful in these particular areas. And everything that Paul has said in this letter so far, they are thriving in most of the areas that he is mentioning here at the end. But as Paul takes this kind of final lap for this letter, right? He's crossed the line and he's, he's entering this final lap of this letter. He's kind of just flipping every switch on the dashboard. That, that's what's happening in this. He's just flipping every switch on the council. And this pen that he's writing with is like an automatic weapon. 
I mean, it's just firing off these exhortations as he ends this particular letter. He's asking them to be certain things and to do certain things. He's appealing to their hearts. He's urging them. He's appealing to their wills. He's informing them. He's appealing to their minds. And so he is expecting them to adhere to what he is saying at the end of this letter because he wants them to glorify God. He wants them to please Christ. He wants them to be sanctified in the truth by the Spirit. And so Paul wants this church to obey now these ending words here, these, uh, this apostle's words. And it comes from him and the fellow ministers. And listen, you should want to obey what's here at the end of this letter too. As Paul is just kind of saying like, let me just get everything in at the end of this letter so that this church can be everything that Christ wants it to be. We see in this section all these exhortations, and as you read them, you should want to do what the Apostle Paul says because this is the inspired word of God. You shouldn't have to be pressed to do what's written here. And I say that because Paul is expecting the same thing from these believers. He doesn't need to press to get them to obey what God says here. He expects that they desire to do so because he said it throughout all the letters. You're eager to grow, but I want you to grow more and more. And so we should be like him and desire to grow. And so let me just give you kind of the, the, the direction of where this is headed. In this section, in verses 12 through 22, these are church exhortations, ecclesiastical exhortation. But in this section, there are three real parts to it. And Paul, first in this section, in verses 12 through 13, in verses 12 through 13 of this entire exhortation, in the first two verses, will exhort the church about its relationship with its leaders. So in this church exhortation, he's going to tell them, first of all, how the church is to relate to its leaders. Then in verses 14 through 15, what Paul's going to exhort the church in is about its relationship with each other. And then in verses 16 through 22, he's going to exhort this church in this individual and corporate attitude and responsibilities, individual attitudes and responsibilities. So again, the relationship with the church and its leaders, the relationship with each other, and then the individual attitudes and responsibilities of the believers. That's what he's kind of dividing these exhortations into within this big picture of encouraging this church. And so this morning, we're covering the second part. This is the second message on the church's relationship with its leaders. This is the second message in regards to the church's relationship with its leaders in verses 12 through 13. You can go back and listen to the first one. It was a couple weeks ago. But you have here Paul's exhortations in these first two verses about how the church is to relate to its leaders. And there's really two main things that he says here in verses 12 through 13. In verse 12, there's two kind of main teachings. In verse 12, it's the fact that the church is to respect and appreciate its leaders. We covered that in verse 12. And then in verse 13, it's to esteem and obey them. That's what he's saying here. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you or over you in the Lord, admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So in verses 12 through 13, two main thrusting instructions. Verse 12, respect and appreciate them. Verse 13, esteem and obey them. And Paul's expecting his, this church to respond well. That's how the church is to treat its leaders. This is the apostle's words. So in verse 12, let me just recap briefly what we saw last time. And you'll see the points on the screen. Here's what he says in verse 12, as I mentioned. Recognize and appreciate your leaders. That's what he said. And why? Who are these leaders? Well... Remember, they're the ones that labor among you. They're the ones that have charge over you. And they're the ones who instruct you. So that's the structure of what Paul is saying here. Recognize and appreciate your leaders. 
because they labor among you, they have charge over you, and they instruct you. Okay? And so what we'll see this time in verse 13, in just a moment, is he says, now esteem and obey your leaders. Esteem and obey your leaders. So as Paul tells this church what it's to do in relationship with its leaders, he says, recognize and appreciate them because they labor among you. They have charge over you. They instruct you. And then esteem and obey them. And I could put some sub points there, but I just really want to kind of make it just real clear by just keeping it all together because there are some sub points that belong to it as well. But here's the deal. As we get into this, listen now, okay? Because this is extremely practical. God saves a people through the gospel of Christ. That's what he does in redemption. He calls people to himself through the work of Christ, saves them, makes them his people, and they are to be made holy for the rest of their lives. They're to be used by God and to become like God. That's the gospel. That's the message that Christ has come to save sinners and make them God's children, God's people, his church, his called out ones. And so God then, in his infinite wisdom and authority, has given leaders to his body. He's given the elders in each local congregation, according to Titus 1.5. And so they, they, these people are gifts to the church from God himself. That's from Ephesians 4. They are gifts from God to the church. The leaders are. And so they are shepherds who lead the church and feed the church in the word of God, who protect the church, who care for the church, who facilitate discipline within the church. Think about what a shepherd does. They are overseers who govern the church, and they are elders who are examples to the church. Those pictures are from Acts 20, 1 Peter 5. Those are the, those are the functions that are synonymous with this leader. They're shepherds, overseers, elders. All those terms are used for the one office. And so according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, they're to meet certain qualifications, and they are divinely established. They've been given a certain gifting before the foundation of the world as God has created them. They are from God, and then they are clearly called by God according to the New Testament. There's a real calling. Remember, we talked about this. No one is to enter into the ministry without that calling from God. And so they are given for the sanctification of the believers, the equipping of the believers. They're to make the believers holy. They're to help them to uh, reach the world. They're to build them up, to make them spiritually strong. And believers, for their own good and for the glory of Christ, are to recognize those leaders that God has given to the church. And this was established in the first century of the church. And it's to be this way until Christ returns. And so Philippians 1.1 makes it clear. There are elders, there are deacons, and there are saints, right? All equal in the eyes of God, but different in their roles and responsibilities. And so the New Testament clearly teaches then how the church is to relate to these truly called and qualified leaders for the church. And Paul does it here very explicitly. There's no mistaking what he says. So just call out the elephant in the room. It's, it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable to uh, be teaching you about how you should treat me. But just be, like I wouldn't avoid any text in the Bible that might be a detriment in my own wisdom, I also won't avoid any text as we make our way verse by verse through the books that might be to my benefit. Right? So Paul here, these are his words. These are the words of the apostle. And let me tell you here to just expose the problem for a minute that I see as it relates to today. In today's church and in a lot of healthy biblical churches, there seems to be a real subtlety and a sinful reluctance to go all the way in this area. And young believers who desire to be autonomous in their decision-making, that's usually the problem. And then older believers who excuse their subtle pride and gossip. 
and a culture that has kind of bled into the church from the world where individuals believe that what they feel is always right. And the majority of and the organization and the authority is always wrong. That bleeds into the church. And you see it in the world, and that mentality bleeds into the church. And so while most who exhibit these tendencies within the church are really most of the time ignoring the basics of the faith, like daily Bible reading or explicit evangelism or being faithful to their roles in the home and in the church. And so they have a problem being led, but at the same time, they're spiritually unhealthy. And so as we look at this problem, I, I was reading, and I think in the Lord's providence, there's a, and I want to read this article to you, Reformation 21 is a, just a blog by some Reformed pastors, and they actually wrote on this recently, and I think it exposes the problem well, so I'm just going to read it to you, okay? What we're doing in the text is pretty simple, and so it won't take us much time, but this helps us to see the problem as it relates to today. It says, you probably have a good pastor. That's the title. You guys definitely do. <laughs> it seems like everywhere you turn, there are discussions being had about bad pastors. Indeed, multiple books, podcasts, articles, documentaries, airing on such streaming services as Netflix and Hulu, seem to pop up every week or so. And of course, there are bad pastors. And they should be refused the responsibility of leadership among God's beloved flock. But has the focus on bad pastors been overdone? Has the proliferation of what seems people have dubbed as scandal produced a skewed version of reality? Certainly, I expect the world to cast a negative light, as negative light as possible upon Christian pastors. But when that project is taken up by equal zeal in the church, I believe we have reason to be troubled. I have no desire to diminish the sad experiences of those who have found themselves in unfortunate and at times tragic circumstances of having an abusive pastor. But the attention given to those who abuse God's people suggests, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that abusive pastors are the norm. And I think we all know why. It is because the stories of bad pastors get a lot more traffic than any unspectacular account of many good pastors who, day after day, faithfully plod away at their calling. Truth be told, there is something in us that rather enjoys the sensational and the scandalous. We like reading stories of the friends, uh, of the fens and the failures, but the facts of the ground are much more boring. Most of us have good pastors. Perfect pastors? Of course not. Pastors who never disappoint us or successfully mortify all their remaining sin? Nope. But measured against the scripture's expectations for leadership, most Bible-believing evangelical churches, and he's presupposing that these are biblical churches, are served by good pastors. In 35 years of vocational ministry, I have known very few people who can honestly say that they were bullied or abused by their pastors. Again, their stories are real and heartbreaking. No instance of a bad pastor abusing a church member is tolerable. But given the massive number of churches, pastors, and church members, such cases are not nearly as common as the attention given to them suggests. On the other hand, I have never spoken to a pastor who has not been mistreated, slandered, undermined, or run off by church members or an associate pastor, elder, deacons, or all of the above. And I have known more than a few who have been so cruelly treated that they have been, that they have been left deeply scarred along with their families. Sadly, many of these men leave the ministry altogether. They are left in the dust of disillusionment, seeing no way to continue on in the call that at one time had been such a source of great joy. Many others take the beating, persevere, and by God's grace, carry on faithfully. So while no one denies that there are bad pastors, almost no one is discussing the fact that there are bad churches. Where are the documentaries in the podcast discussing pastor-destroying churches? 
There is precious little discussion about the fact that there, there is hardly a pastor out there who has not been wounded, slandered, bullied, or run off by a church or by a bad associate pastor or by ungodly church members. In their excellent book, Handbook for Battered Leaders, Wesley and James Balda throw a spotlight on a well-known but often ignored phenomenon, toxic followers that are present in most organizations and churches. Their exploration of mobbing and triangulation is especially important. They write this. A classic follower response in certain situation is the palace coup. This is the point when the mutiny begins flexing destructive muscles and everyone but the leader realizes a corner has been turned. We all know of situations where a powerful and evil despot abused and evil despot abused followers. We are less convinced that simply misguided or even evil followers can bring down an otherwise competent leader on their own. However, there should not always be a presumption of innocence when confronting followers who have an agenda, as they can eventually destroy leaders and organizations. Yet another problem faced by pastors is a culture of niceness which is typically ill-defined, but nevertheless pervades the congregation, elders, deacons, and staff. While kindness is a virtue that should be pursued, a culture of niceness can often, can and often does turn rancid. Again, they write, while it is entirely good thing that courtesy and civility attend our day-to-day work, niceness can be, ab- can be used to apply unfair standards and gloss over vulnerabilities. Passive-aggressive organizations, meaning the congregation, employ niceness to avoid healthy confrontation and positive conflict. The fear of being seen as a complainer or a whistleblower squashes many of the situations where little righteous anger might be helpful. And God help the leader who allows followers a glimpse of actual frustration or negative emotion. Gossip and mobbing may quickly ensue and ride out of town sometimes follows. He's saying there that because of a culture of niceness, the pastor is held to a standard that's unbiblical. Imagine the complexity of being called to lead a congregation of volunteers who pay your salary. Men and women who oftentimes have competing expectations of you, who are themselves still sinners, Imagine being in a position of leadership where it is absolutely essential to be liked by those you are called to lead, teach, correct, rebuke. Imagine maintaining emotional and spiritual health when every day you are aware that you are letting someone down, failing to live up to a myriad uh, and at times conflicting expectations. Add to that that all too common experiences that pastors have of being actively undermined by associate pastors, slandered by someone who voted against his call, or unyielding criticism from an influential church member. If young men called by God knew how they were likely to be treated in at least one church, I am quite sure there would be very few who are willing to serve in the role of pastor. I have had the joy of serving as a pastor to two congregations who received the word with joy, grew in godliness, loved my family, and blessed me well. Thank you, Metro East Baptist and Covenant Presbyterian. Every faithful pastor should be fortunate enough to serve in such a warm and godly church. I just marked 10 years as a pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I thank God every day for the brothers and sisters I serve and serve with. I doubt you'll find any pastor in the PCA happier than I am with his call. But I also know what it's like to be beaten half to death in an unhealthy place. I know what it's like to be falsely accused and systematically undermined by others on staff. I know what it's like to be in an elder meeting so vicious that it ended in an ambulance. And while details vary from pastor to pastor, my experience is not rare. Lest I be misunderstood, we're almost done with this. I am most certainly not suggesting that pastors ought to expect to serve churches which have been magically purged of sin and sinners. Nor am I suggesting that pastors should expect a carefree vocation filled with rainbows and puppies. The call to the pastor, God's flock, is a call to suffer. By its nature, pastoral ministry is hard. 
It's costly. It's emotionally, spiritually, and in many cases, physically costly. The Apostle Paul lists the anxiety of caring for the churches along with the catalog of gruesome physical tortures he had suffered. It is irresponsible and will harm the church for a pastor to expect pastoral ministry to be a pleasure cruise. But what I'm calling for is a careful consideration as to whether we have made too much of the bully pastor while irresponsibly neglecting neglecting the far more common reality of the bullied and wounded pastor. Has the glut of material dedication to diagnosing and exposing bad pastors been recklessly unaccompanied and counterweighted by the far less interesting fact that most of us have good pastors? What is more, has the definition of bullying become so broad and subjective that nearly every pastor can be accused of bullying by doing no more than simply conforming to the Bible's instructions for pastors and churches? Given today's standards for what constitutes bullying and narcissism, I don't know if the Apostle Paul could avoid the charge. After all, he called the church to publicly excommunicate those in the church who violated God's standards for sexual chastity. At times, he employed sarcasm to expose error. He named individuals who had harmed him and warned the churches to avoid such people. He rebuked churches for their sins and doctrinal errors at times quite harshly. He even invited one group of errant teachers within the church to castrate themselves. He wrote one letter to a church that was so harshly worded that he, would, that he feared that they would reject him entirely. He forbid women from instructing men in the church and called wives to submit to their husbands. Paul even commanded churches to obey their elders and give double honor to those who preach. He frequently asserted his status as an apostle and expected to be treated as such. Or what of the writer of Hebrews? He told the church members to obey their leaders because they keep watch over your souls. Is it even conceivable that today such statements would escape the charges of narcissism, bullying, and abuse? Douglas Kelly, in his wonderful title and book, New Life in the Wasteland, writes, wherever there is a faithful ministry in today's culture, it is likely that those who begin feeling the authority of God coming through the preaching of the word will first of all start attacking the minister. People feel more free than ever to give the fullest reign to their dislike, their criticism of leadership. The following are examples of things which are not abusive or bullying or narcissistic. If you are a member of a church, being led is not abuse. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Church discipline, including excommunication, is not abuse. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. Correction and rebuke are not abuse. Mark 8, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2. Being told hard things is not abuse. Galatians, 1 Corinthians. Being expected to follow leadership is not abuse. Hebrews 13. Being told you need to mature spiritually is not abuse. Sorry, I lost my spot here. Hebrews 5. Being confronted in your sin is not abuse. Being rebuked for holding to errant doctrine is not abuse, Titus 1. Being expected to faithfully attend and support the church is not abuse, Ephesians 4, Hebrews 10. The expectation that you honor and obey your leaders is not abuse, 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews 13. The expectation to care for the financial needs of your pastor is not abuse, 1 Timothy 5. Being disappointed is not abuse. Discovering that your pastor can, at times, be in a bad mood is not abuse. Thank goodness. If you're an associate pastor, being expected to follow the leadership of the senior pastor is not abuse. Having your responsibilities altered is not abuse. Not being the senior pastor yourself is not abuse. Being told no is not abuse. Witnessing your pastor in a grumpy mood is not abuse. Having a hard job is not abuse. The consequences of poor job performance and rotten attitude is not abuse. Since you probably have a good pastor, I am sure you want to be the source of encouragement to him. Here's a few ideas. We're almost done. 
I said that earlier. <laughs> but we are. Receive the ministry. Here's some good ideas. Receive the ministry of your pastor. Good pastors long to see God's people grow in Christ-likeness. So be committed to the gathered worship of the congregation. You need to be under the preaching of God's word. Participate in Sunday school and small groups so you can be further trained by the scriptures. Find a need in the church that you can help meet. Your pastor does not need you to pamper him. He's not looking for a Rolex or Mercedes. If he is, then get a different pastor. What he plans for, what he prays for, what he studies, what he preaches and teaches for is your sanctification. Be patient with your pastor. He is struggling through his sanctification just as you are. When he seems troubled, it is probably because he is. Does he seem a little standoffish or self-protective? Instead of criticizing him for it, consider the fact that he bears some pretty deep wounds. Now, a pastor cannot afford to live in an isolated and self-protected life. If that has become a pattern, he needs to be corrected. But instead of rallying against him, try to help him in the ways that you would want him to help you. Mark the important moments in the pastor's life with the church. Celebrate his anniversaries of the services to the church. Mark the milestones of his ministry and education like his ordination. This sort of affirmation is life-giving to your pastor and makes up for a great deal of the sorrow which, timpani, which typically accompanies the pastoral's ministry. Be kind to your pastor's wife. Be kind to your pastor's children. And please, please, please pray for your pastor. None of these things call for heroic or undue burdens. You probably have a good pastor. Treat them like a brother in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, last quote, says of his sorrow in ministry, I bless God that my fearful experience had prepared me to sympathize. I would go into the deep a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might know how to speak a word in a season to one that is weary. So this is what I think needs to be heard is that there is far too much focus on the abused pastor, which has been so, or abusing pastor, which has been so generalized that they can't even teach and rebuke with the word of God. And there needs to be a correction in the abusive follower. And so the question really confronts us as we just look at these few words in this text. Will you do hear what Paul writes? Will you do what Paul, the apostle of God, who's inspired by the spirit of God and is writing the authoritative word of God here, will you do what he writes? Or will you think that you and your situation is the exception? Will you be like the Thessalonian church who needed no more than a request from the apostle? In this category, all Paul says is, I ask you, because he knows that they are eager to grow. So what does Paul say to this church about how it's to relate to its leaders exactly? Just briefly, verse 12, recap. It says, he says to recognize and appreciate your leaders. Remember this? He says, they labor among you. They have charge over you. They instruct you. Okay, that's how this works. It says in verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those. And then three participles who are describing who those are. They're the leaders who do what? Who labor among you, who have charge over you and who instruct you. And so as Paul turns from comforting the church about the day of the Lord and the rapture, and he enters into this final great list of exhortations, he makes a gentle request for this church to become everything that he is wanting them to become. And the first request is to recognize, appreciate the leaders. Now, when he says this here, the verb is oida. That, that is the verb to know, know your leaders. It's interesting that he uses this here because the, the ESV here translates it uh, respect. The NASB translated, which are two literal translations as appreciate. And, and this knowing involves all of this. Know your leaders. It involves even more than that. To know them here, what he's saying is to know them personally, to know them intimately, to get to know them, 
to care about them, to provide for them, to recognize their position, know them, know who they are, their God-made gifting and their God-appointed calling. Embrace them, embrace their roles and embrace them with your heart and respect them. That's what he's saying here. Why and who are these leaders? Listen now. They are the ones who labor among them. What does that mean? Well, it's working to the point of exhaustion. That's what word is used here. They're giving their whole lives to this calling. They are among them, it says, who labor among you. They're not far off. They're in it. They're with the people and they're working to the point of exhaustion for the glory of Christ. That's what he's saying here. They're among them. And then they're over them in the Lord. They're laboring among them. They're over them in the Lord. You see this in verse 12. You following along with me here? They're over them in the Lord, meaning what? They preside over the flock. What it says is what it means here. They're over them in the Lord. This is what God has set up. He's given charge. There are people over you in the Lord. And so meaning they are called and appointed by God in the Lord, meaning this is appointment by God. And so this is God exercising his work for his saints through his leaders. That means that they are called by God. And by the way, I had a lot of people come up to me last week and talk about, because we talked about how important it was that this leader was called by God. And if they are, then they are representative of God to the people. A lot of people said, well, how do you know the calling? If you want to get your pen ready to write fast, I'm going to give you just about 10 um, things that involve it. I'm not going to give you any reference or explanation. I can talk with you about this later, but how does someone recognize? a call to ministry. Well, here's the calling. They're all C's for the calling. Ready? There's got to be first conversion. Just write fast. Conversion. You can't have a pastor who's not a believer, right? Secondly, there's got to be conviction. What do I mean by that? I mean that they have to see what the word says and be so deeply burdened by it and that people hear it, obey it, and follow it, that there is a conviction to do something about it. There's conviction. Third, there's compulsion, meaning they have a desire, an inward compulsion of their own. Uh, Paul says of the qualifications and leadership, if any man, what? Desires to be an overseer. So you got conversion, you've got conviction, you've got compulsion, then there's gotta be character, meaning that your life has to match what the qualifications are for a pastor in 1 Timothy and Titus. Then beyond that, There's competency or capability. They got to be able to teach. They got to be able to shepherd. They got to be able to lead people, right? So you got conversion, conviction, compulsion, character, competency or capability. And then you got, when you're assessing someone's call to ministry, what about their current effectiveness or their current fruit? If someone says, hey, look, I think I'm called to ministry. I'm like, okay, who are you discipling? When's the last time you shared your faith? How often do you read your Bible? Uh, Well, I'm still working on all that. Okay, I don't know if you're called to ministry, right? It's like imagining that you're gonna be a a good husband when you're living a total sinful life and that marriage is just gonna change you. No, it's not, right? Who you are going into marriage is who you'll be within marriage. And so the same thing is true about the call to ministry. So then you got the confirmation. Confirmation meaning there are other people around you who see this call working itself out in your life. Man, you really know the word of God. Man, God really uses you when you do this. Man, you're really effective. Man, you really can see things in scripture that is hard for me to see. Man, you communicate the word to people. You can help them grow. You just know where people are and know where they need to go. Man, you have just such a love for this, right? So there's this confirmation. Then there's circumstances, meaning there's opportunity, there's providence, God gives opportunity. He guides the world through his providence and the simplest way to say it is open and closed doors, right? I mean, if God's shutting every door and you feel like you're forcing everyone open to go into ministry, maybe you should stop and think for just a moment. Then there's capacity. Do you have the ability to juggle a lot of things at the same time, right? And then, and I think these are all scripturally warranted. And then there's coaching, the last thing, which is just education, training, right? The man of God who is to go into ministry should get the best education possible because he's the expert of the word of God. People won't grow any higher than he is. So there's this real element of call. This is the one who labors among them. And this is the one who is over them in the Lord. 
right? There's a real element and there must be. And then the last part of this, verse 12, the review. And I just, I'm just getting us to bathe in this, to just soak in this for a couple weeks and then we'll move on. So, um, so we're just kind of swimming around in this and letting it soak, soak into our hearts. So they are the ones who instruct you. ESV says um, admonish. Uh, uh, and so this is the word that's used for warn or admonish or instruct. It's nutheteo, which really is instruction by knowledge, but not only instruction, but it's for the purpose of correcting and changing people. It's to put the truth on one's mind so that people change their behavior. Okay, and this is where we get nuthetic what? Counseling, right? This is where we get nuthetic counseling, which is just biblical counseling, okay? Biblical counseling is mean, it thinks that the word is sufficient to not diagnose our true issues. It's our issues are really always spiritual, right? Because we're related to God. We've been created by God and we live in a sinful world and we have a sinful nature. And so we can't find God's mind on how we are to change apart from God's word, which reveals God's mind. And so it's part of the plan of redemption for the believer to be sanctified by the word. And when there's dominant issues, life dominant issues, there are some very skilled people like, people like Pastor Chad who is able to help instruct and help put the word to bear on one's mind for repentance and change in a very deep way and meaningful way. But this is what happens in preaching and teaching. It's the instruction. It's to put on one's mind the truth of the word of God so it leads to a transformation of their life. You say, oh my goodness, I never knew that this was what was true. I've got to change, right? They're the ones, the pastors are the ones who do it. And really, can I tell you, this is a congregation's responsibility too because in, if you look at chapter five, verse 14, if you go down to verse 14, it says admonish the idol. And in some other cases, it means like, it says admonish or warn the unruly, meaning this, and that's for the congregation's instructions. If there's someone in the church who won't be ruled by the leadership or by the peace that needs to be within the church, then the local members, each other, the way in which you're supposed to relate to each other is you're supposed to warn those people who won't be ruled within the church. Hey, I hear you gossiping over there. You better stop it, right? Literally, that's the idea here, right? I see you not obeying the Lord here. I see you going off on your own and making your own decisions. I see you, whatever it may be. Right? And so that is even the congregation's job. But it's, it's the idea, and that's the same word there, and it's translated admonish or warn. And so it's the ones who instruct, the ones who warn, the ones who teach, the ones who are, 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 are imparting this truth for the purpose of life change. It's what 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4 points us to, 3 and 4. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, that means showing you where you're wrong, for correcting you, showing you how to turn back to the right way and for training in righteousness, ongoing holy living, right? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are things that need to happen. You show them where they're wrong. You tell them that this is wrong and then you help them to live it differently with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into myths. So Paul's first major exhortation, know, respect, appreciate, recognize, care for the leaders. Does this describe you? That's the question. Do you have and show an appreciation and respect for the leaders of this church? Do you try to get to know them personally? Do you appreciate them in your heart and with your actions? Do you recognize their calling by God, their exhaustive labor? Do you recognize their charge over your life? by the Lord for your spiritual growth? Do you choose not to live as spiritually autonomous by involving them in the decisions that you make? Do you take heed to their ambassadorial teaching, meaning sent by the king to proclaim a message that's from the king? 
when they inform you with the word of God? Do you change when you hear that teaching from the word of God? Do you respect their position? Do you care for their lives? Well, there's a second major instruction and that's to esteem and obey your leaders. Look at verse 13. To esteem and obey them. Verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So what's the major instruction here? It's to esteem. Esteem from hegiomai, which means to think about or to consider or to regard. Think about them this way. Regard them this way. Uh, uh, in your mind, consider them as this. This is how you are to think about your leadership in the church. And if not, you're disobeying what Paul instructs here. How? Very highly. Pretty simple. But what this means is actually pretty shocking. It means beyond all measure. Think about them beyond all measure. Meaning, think about them abundantly to the point of being excessive. That's the word. And the best lexicon that we have in the world for the Greek meaning of what this means. So this is not me making it up. This is what it literally says. Beyond all measure, abundant to the point of being excessive. That's what Paul meant when he wrote it. It means the highest form of comparison imaginable, meaning the absolute most that you can possibly do with all your strength. Think about them in this way, abundantly to the point of even being excessive. Beyond all measure. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You see when people look to pastors and say, wow, they're great. And so many people love them and follow them and look to them and want to hear what they're saying and teaching. And, and, and we get the, the two all too common, oh, idolizing, idolizing, idolizing. No, it's actually doing what Paul said. If this man is being faithful to the word of God and if the people are following and they're being pointed to Christ. If he's not doing it for his own narcissistic behavior. That's the way God set it up. Just like a child would be told to do the same for their dad. Not because the dad needs to fill his ego, but because that's how the family stays healthy. That's how the body will stay healthy. And we need to have a culture like that. You need to help cultivate a culture in this church like what Paul is saying here, because it will keep us healthy. It will keep us healthy. He uses an even more intensifying description. These would be kind of the subsequent points, right? Esteem them, how? Very highly. Next one, in love. What he's saying here is meaning this needs to be genuine from your heart. You can't fabricate this. And if you're doing, you're not following his instructions. And the word he uses here is agape, which means the highest form of selfless, sacrificial, service-like love that the Bible gives. This is the highest form of love, right? You see that interaction between Jesus and Peter? Jesus keeps using agape. Peter keeps using what? Phileo. Peter's saying, I don't love you like I should, basically. He's ashamed. And Jesus says, do you agape me? And Jesus then comes down to his level and says, hey, even your lesser love is sufficient if it's real. But the point is, is we see the dichotomy between those two forms of love and Paul uses agape here. Why? Well, it's not because they're personalities, okay? You don't have to like all the leaders' personalities. They don't have to be the same as you. They don't have to do exactly what you expect. But why does he say to esteem them or think about them, abundant to the point of being excessive with a genuine heart. Why? Because of their work. That's what he says here, because of their work. What work? Well, the work that we just talked about. Labor to the point of exhaustion. 
charge or position or calling over the flock and because of their instruction. That's their work. So what they're called to do as shepherds, elders, as overseers, that's why you are to esteem them to the point of abundance, almost being excessive. Galatians 4, Paul gives a picture of the Galatian church that treated him like this, and we're done almost. He says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? Because they had moved to some false teaching. He said, I testify to you that if possible, this is how they treated him, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. And then he says, now have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, they were doing so well in how they were treating Paul and then because he told them the truth, they changed. (laughs) Right? He says, they make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Speaking of the false teachers, make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what he wanted. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. They treated him how they were to treat him. Then he told them the truth. Then Paul was worried about them because they turned away once the truth hit their ears. The last thing he says here is be at peace. This would be another kind of sub point. Be at peace among yourselves. The context of this is in relationship to the church leaders. It's not yet moving into the relationship between the church and itself because you see this next line here that says, and we urge you. It's like creating a new section. So this is still within the section of the relationship with its leaders. It says be at peace among yourselves. And the context, again, of the church relationship with its leaders, what he's saying here is in order to be a peaceful flock, you'd need to submit to your leaders. The idea here is obedience. That's what he's saying here. That's why I put as the point, esteem and obey your leaders. He's talked about esteem and then there's obedience. Being unruly would affect the whole flock. You know that. Submitting, responding as scripture commands would bring about peace and stability to the flock. And what he's implying here is by not doing this, by not peacefully submitting to God's word as an individual in this area, you are not promoting peace corporately. Actually, you're disrupting peace. And the results of obeying your leaders, considering their ways, will eliminate sin of the congregation because it takes heed to the teaching, to the effective ministry, to the healthy church life. And so... Unless the leaders are doing something unscriptural and sinful, you are to obey and submit to them. And so the question is, does this describe you? Does this describe you? Does this describe how you think about the leaderships, the leadership of this church? Does this describe your heart? Does this describe your actions? And will you help to cultivate that environment hear and hold one another accountable to do so. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that you would have your great way in us. Your words are clear. We love how plain they are. They make clear to us the way in which we should live, the way in which we should act, the way in which we should serve you and know you and love you and love each other. And I pray by your mercy and by your great grace, that you would work this in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we can be everything that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.